Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to another episode of The Gary Hour. I'm your host, Gary Levitt. This week, I talk to military veteran and stand-up comedian, Derek Humphrey. Gets a little gruesome with the war talk, and we hear about being in the Navy right after 9-11. We hear about his upbringing in uh, Ohio, some addiction, all kinds of interesting stuff, and what brought him to become a stand-up comedian here in New York. A very busy one, too. This episode is brought to you by Future Moments, makers of mobile apps for content creation. Are you a musician? Do you make videos on your phone? Are you a podcaster? Search for Future Moments on the App Store and you'll find an app that will make your life easier. All right, thanks for listening. Check out the show notes on this podcast. And uh, there's links to the guest, and to leave a review. Okay, Derek Humphrey, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, so you're a veteran. I am a veteran. And you're also a stand-up comic. I am a stand-up comedian. So I've been wondering, which makes you feel like you're more in combat? Being on stage or being in a war zone? Being on stage... It yeah. It does feel like a war, right? Like you versus the audience sometimes when they're not laughing, right? Yeah, which is often. Uh, <laughs> nah. Well, the 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 isolation of being on the stage and being alone. When mm. I was in the military, we're all part of a unit and part of a team. You're not successful without the team. Mm-hmm. And stand up, you're you have a team, but they're all behind the scenes. Not necessarily rooting for you. No. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, like, like the people who are uh, in my life who help, like, manage and support me in comedy. Yeah, in comedy, but they're not on stage with me. Uh huh. Yeah, and up there alone, I'm the only one who's like accountable for whatever I put out there. Yeah. Do you sometimes feel like it's you versus the audience? Sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When? When they suck. 
<laughs> when, when you're doing jokes that you know work because you've done them enough and most most of the times people laugh yeah you know i've i've really changed my attitude about that though it, if there's a drunk if there's a drunk heckler then sure mm, right. uh, i definitely that's me versus them or a group of them or, or one individual i've ha- i i have uh i have a problem where I really want smart audience members and you can't necessarily pick that. No. Like you can ask for all the smart fans in the world or, but at some point in time, you have to be like, I just have whoever likes me. <laughs> you definitely don't want to do shows at LOL comedy club in times square then. You're <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. I don't, I'm not, uh, I don't ever usually go over too well there sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think I'm a little too old for them, but um, yeah. So sometimes in that sense, for sure. Uh, there, I mean, there's no real, there's no real danger in stand up. There is, there's ego danger. Yeah. There's ego danger. Yeah. Well, when you get a heckler, aren't you like, yo, I'm a veteran. No, no, you no, don't pull that I card. never play that card. I never even, I don't even talk about it on stage. Well, I, I noticed it's not in your bio. No, uh-uh. but I've heard you talk about it on stage, which is how I knew. Well, I've talked about it. Uh, it, depending on the context of how I've had to talk about it, I'll talk about it. Mm-hmm. So if it's relevant to what it is that's going on in my set, I'll bring it up. Or I have like a couple of jokes nowadays where I'm starting to touch on it. Yeah. But overall, I really don't address it. Did you see combat? Yeah. Were you carrying a gun? No. So I was in the Navy and I was in from 2000 to 2005. And my ship uh, was one of the first responders to the attacks on 9-11. Mm-hmm. And then also we were the first ship to fire missiles into Baghdad and Operation Iraqi Freedom. Okay, so you, from your ship you fired missiles yeah. into Baghdad. Yeah. So <laughs> I have this thing where I do now at, at comedy shows where uh, the host would be like, what, uh, what do you want me to bring you up with? And I'll tell them, um, I'm from the Oscar-nominated film Lady Bird. Right? Because in the movie Lady Bird, it takes place in 2003. Yeah. And they show news footage as, you know, to frame it, the time frame it. And there's, they're showing a ship firing missiles off because it was the first strike in the Baghdad. That was my ship. Oh, so there was your comedy credit? Is yeah, yeah. Bombing well, Baghdad? I, well, I did, yeah, I know, right? I just do that as a joke. It's more a joke for me than anything else. I find it amusing. And then the audience is like, I don't remember him from Lady Bird. Okay, so I caught, I caught the years. You were, you were in 2000. Yeah. So you joined in 2000, 9-11 happened 2001. Correct. All right, so all of a sudden you're like, whoa. I, you probably didn't expect to see combat when you joined. Uh, I No, actually, okay, so October 17th, 2000 was the first day that uh, I actually signed on, on to join. And that was the day that the USS Cole got bombed. Oh, so did you join as a reaction to that? No, it was just purely coincidence. So this is before we had iPhones and tablets and all that sort of stuff. I had, I didn't even have like, I think I had a pager maybe uh-huh. like this is 2000. So it was going, you know, it was ancient times. So I was at the recruiting office, signed my name on the dotted line, went home back to my studio apartment in Ohio. And I had a voicemail or a message on my answering machine. I had a cassette tape answering machine. Yeah. It was my mom. And she was saying like, you know, the USS Cole got bombed today. You can back out of this if you want. You know, we won't hold it against you. We know that tensions are running up and all that sort of thing. And I was like, no, this is what this is part of it. Mm-hmm. You can't deny 
its existence when you're joining the military. Mm-hmm. And what's ironic about it is that the day the USS Coal got bombed, the ship that rescued it and brought it back over to America was the USS Donald Cook. And that's the one I ended up getting stationed on. USS Donald Cook? Yeah. It was named after a prisoner of war during the Vietnam War. Why? Oh, yeah. What made you want to join? I wanted to get out of Ohio. Yeah. More than anything else, I really want to be a comedian and be in the arts, but where I come from, you don't really, it, it didn't seem like an option. Where were you coming from? Toledo, right. Toledo Ohio. Mm-hmm. So, Toledo, Ohio, Ohio in the 80s is like, it was, it was, you know, right before the auto industry tanked. Right. But everybody worked in the factory or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, they worked at Kmart or whatever the case may be. Or if you're lucky or pe- more and more people were starting to go to school, go to college. After right. the fact, a lot of people I went to high school with they ended up going to college, but not necessarily, that wasn't necessarily true of our parents. Right. So it wasn't around you, this idea of pursuing your dreams. Right. Yeah. My step, my, my mom got remarried when I was 13, 14, and my stepdad and my mom and I used to go to Chicago and go see Second City. Mm-hmm. And I was really keen on the idea of doing it, but I just didn't know how you do that sort of thing. But well, your mom took you there. She must have been in the know of somehow. No. This <laughs> is random. No, it was just that they knew that I loved Saturday Night Live and they knew I loved sketch and sort of stuff. So they're like, we'll go, you know, we'll take it. We're in town. We're going to go watch Second City. It was famous. Right. And nobody else in your middle school or high school was. A- was tuned into this idea that you no. can yeah isn't it amazing how one person can completely change the trajectory of your life yeah all it, t- all it would have taken was one friend in high school to be like hey i think i'm gonna move to new york and pursue stand-up comedy yeah i know that would have been that would have been really influential you know the thing is too is we used to go to uh second city and that's when like steve carell was there right so i saw steve carell as like a kid and you're sitting there i'm looking at like uh to see where he's at now and to see yeah. where I was then. I mean, I'm not anywhere now, but uh, hey, you're here. I'm here. I am. <laughs> no offense. <laughs> no, but I mean like uh, to, to think that uh, to think that that was a viable option in life. It just, it just didn't seem like it. And maybe, and maybe it was my own insecurities and whatnot because I grew up as like an only child and, and uh, my dad wasn't around and everything. And when he was around, it was like play sports or you're, gay or whatever right sort of a macho guy yeah yeah and he was into drugs and shit like that and into fucking off and he didn't really have any real pursuits other than heroin Mm -hmm. and so uh it just never i remember when i told him i had to go stay with him when i was like 14 because he lived in detroit and i grew up in ohio and i had to go stay with him and he's like what do you want to do when you're older i'm like i want to be on saturday night live he's like i don't why he's like i don't see that what do you want to be gilda radna right yeah. he's like I, no he's just like i don't see it out of you at all you want to play with dolls and make funny faces yeah yeah you want to throw coffee on yourself <laughs> and or be chris farley and jump through a table right. he just like he just was a negative influence in that regard right so now you probably see it differently how it's more himself projecting right oh yeah for sure yeah he was a real prick mm-hmm so, but there was, and like, by the time I got to high school, yeah, I had it so in my mind that if you were in like the drama club or you were in acting or things like that, it was like, you're a nerd. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I'm glad that there are, it seems that like kids today are more accepting of different ideas and different behaviors and things like that. Cause I would have definitely stood to benefit from something like that. 
Right. And also I think with the internet, maybe you're more in, in tune with what possibilities are. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So there's, there's a lot on the table right now of this conversation. Oh. There's so much, but I want to get back to the, yeah, uh, go for it. the Navy. So you joined in 2000, the USS yeah. call had just been bombed and yep. you're like, all right, I'm, I'm still in. Right. Yeah. So then you're in it for not even a full year when 9-11 happened. Right. Yeah. So, but then you're, then it's 2001 and we didn't declare a war in Iraq till 2003, right? Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what was happening with you in between those? So after like, so the morning of 9-11, it, you know, eight in the morning, everything in the world is fine. Yeah. Tell me about this day. What's it like being in the Navy on 9-11? We were in a place called uh we were in jamestown virginia or yorktown virginia one of the two jamestown virginia they have a, a weapons unload station uh, there so like that's we had, where you just dock and load dock yes we had tomahawk missiles on our ship and we were in the process of uh weapons handling is like a really big deal obviously mm-hmm. so when you're when you're put in a dock in that situation um and you start unloading weapons all your other functions shut down because they want you to be as it's almost like putting somebody under this ship is an organism. And so you want it to be completely like almost coma, like, because you don't want anything to go off to, you know, it's dangerous. Tomahawk oh. missile drops. You're dead. Whoops. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Like it's a big whoopsie do. Yeah. Yeah. No drinking on the job that day. And so that's also a perfect time to send your crew off for training. So most of my one third of the crew was actually back in Norfolk, Virginia, where I, where the ship was stationed at, and they were in training there at schools. They were learning how to do like different functions on the ship and enhance their careers. So the morning of nine eleven, it was Tuesday, like eight thirty, nine in the morning, and we're just like cleaning. Like part of the day to day routine was cleaning. Obviously, so we had to clean our birthing area, which is where everybody slept, and we we're just like watching MTV. Right. You were like watching outcast videos and nine inch nails videos and stuff like that. I remember it pretty, pretty vividly. And then, Hey, (laughs) no, this is like miss Jackson. This is before. Yeah. This is before the double album. And then all of a sudden, um, this dude, Matt, does he comes just barreling down the stairs and kicks open the door. He's like, he's like, change the fucking channel, change the fucking channel. He was like, he was like a, uh, airplane just flew into world trade center. And our captain, uh, JJ Costello, he came over the, what's called the one MC it's the ship's announcing system. And he said, he said, uh, we're going to general quarters. Everybody get to your battle stations. We're getting ready. We're in, uh, with only having two thirds of our crew, we were able to get a completely offline ship up and going and in route to, uh, the, off the, being off the coast of New York within 30 minutes, which is Wow, you just like lock and load and float and go. Yeah, yeah, basically. And and then, you know, so the morning of 9-11, so we're going full bore up, mm. to, up to the coast. And we're over in like the harbor over outside Jersey, New York area. And only one plane so far. Uh, no, the oh, second plane had hit. Second the second plane had hit in this time. And we beelined it. I mean, we made it up like pretty quick within a few hours because we're going full tilt, obviously. To respond to it and we had orders that if there were any planes that were in the sky like shoot them down yes i remember when that happened they they that, they like they grounded the all lock. the planes worldwide yeah like all planes in the whole world are grounded because that's potentially a weapon 
So if there was still a plane in the air, there was that was the potential to be a terrorist. It could have been a plane full of nuns, and you're like, right. you got to take it out of the sky. So wait, was that what you were hoping for? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had to you know eradicate that Catholic guilt. <laughs> Uh, this is for all the times you spanked me. Yeah, yeah. This is for all those CCD classes. <laughs> Did you go to Catholic school? Yeah. Oh man, there's so much to talk to you about. <laughs> yeah. I hear, oh man, it gets worse. <laughs> and so, um, so anyway, so we had these orders and whatnot, and we just were in like we just like didn't know what was happening. Mm. We didn't know if we were going to get sent to Afghanistan. We didn't know if we were where we were going, what we were doing if we were going to dock in New York to help with the cleanup efforts, all that sort of stuff. But at the, for in the meantime, we're sitting there and like, you see an airplane, you shoot it. Mm-hmm. Now my role was that of a firefighter. I didn't have anything to do with weapons in that regard. I did have to carry a weapon for a while to carry a gun, but they took it from us. They're like, you guys don't really need these. Right. So you're on scene basically. Yeah. On scene. And then after we got, you know, it really took about, a half a day or you know like a business day for people to really figure out that was it as far as that goes however to us we were constantly constantly patrolling the shore so we were all up for the next three weeks three and a half weeks somewhere around there we were all up and down the shore we weren't able to communicate with the outside world and we were operating on two-thirds crew and we refused to pull back into port because other ships were so unprepared. But our captain was so prepared and was so like, he would make fun of other ships because they'd be like, oh, they got to pull into port because they they can't hang. Because they ran out of food or something? They like ran that? out of food. We were eating eggs and rice for oh. like dinner. Yeah. Because we just were not going to leave our station sort of thing. And we took like a lot of pride in that. And you're just pro- patrolling for as a defense your role is defense if anything yeah 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 and so finally like after a few weeks could finally send out some emails to people and be like hey it's me i'm okay right you know this is what i know and this is what i'm allowed to tell you and this is what you probably know or how close to the to ground zero were you like what can you smell the stuff and you could see i mean you could no uh you couldn't smell anything like that you could see uh uh the city you could see like things were transpiring and whatnot but mainly we could see that through the tv uh feed i was an engineer so i had to be down in the very bottom depths of the of the ship and for the most part we weren't allowed to be topside uh topside topside is like outside outside on the ship like if you're outside and whatnot uh just because if you're in a battle station you need to be where you're supposed to be so what 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 was the the feeling like was everyone just like all right that's it let's go get whoever did this yeah 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 of course yeah you you were all we know is we were just attacked mm-hmm. and it's either we need to help out in response to this or we need to go fuck someone up right and so that sentiment was like running rampant so when it happened i think we found out pretty quickly that it was mainly people from afghanistan right and then all of a sudden you're given orders to go attack iraq well, that was years later. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that you know, two thousand one, we didn't go. We weren't in Iraq until May two thousand three. Right. Yeah. What happened in between? Right after that, I mean. So we came back to Norfolk for, I think we were there for about a month, and then after that, we went over to Europe. Uh, we were engaged in a uh, an exercise in which America was selling some of our technology to 
believe it was NATO, but specifically Norway. What, weren't people, at least on your ship, just like, what are we doing? What the hell, man? Let's like get somebody. We were just attacked. Yeah, the sentiment was there, and everybody kind of rallied together as being like, holy shit, we are Americans. We're one sort of thing. But, you know, uh, you follow direction from the top on down. So, you know, you try to focus your energies into executing your orders. Mm. Uh, and you try as best you can to put that to the side. And of course you want to see something, you want to see action. You want to, it's not that you want to see action, but you want to, you want to get, get re retribution and, yeah. and you want to defend your country and you want to, you know, they're, they, they hurt a citizen. They hurt citizens. They hurt your fellow countrymen. You want to avenge that for lack of a better term. Right. So you were able to just, every you and everyone else were just kind of suppress that anger. No, I mean, it would come out in other ways. You know, we like we had like a speed bag and, you know, we had weights and stuff like that. Or, you know, uh, we just, I mean, we were a bunch of crazy asses anyways, but uh, it wasn't no, anything. You're, you're not a macho guy. And, and what, what, I'm, what I'm hearing is like kind of a macho sort of scenario. I'm, well, I'm 40 now. Okay. <laughs> so I'm a little bit more subdued. <laughs> I, no, I'm not a macho guy in that sense at were, all. I mean, when push then? comes to shove, nah. When push comes to shove, I will be. Yeah. You know, uh, I got I got interviewed uh, by the New York Times yesterday and about the Louis C.K. thing. And right. I posted it uh, online and I had like... Because Louis C.K. made his first comeback at the comedy yeah, show. Yeah, he did yeah. like 15 minutes drop-in. Yeah, he did a drop-in set. And, they, and the audience gave him a standing ovation. I don't know. Um, I don't know if they gave... I don't know if it was a standing over or not. They definitely... They might have. Okay. I don't yeah. know. I, I heard it didn't go well. He didn't do well. Well, I heard they gave him like a really huge like ovation, half standing before he like when he was walking up on stage. Uh huh. But I heard the actual jokes didn't go that well. Right. But regardless of that, they they asked me my opinion about the whole thing, and then I I gave it and I posted it or whatever the case may be, and then like you know, I got called a cuck by a whole bunch of. <laughs> Tro internet trolls and everything and that's because, what that, because your opinion was that he shouldn't he I, they asked me if i would let him come on my show right i said no because i run uh well it's i run a bar show in brooklyn and uh we do our best to book as many women comics as we can right. we try to have representation and most of the women that i mean 99 percent of the women that we that we book or do comedy with have expressed that they would feel really uncomfortable and they don't feel that he's atoned for what it is he's done. Right. So I have to, I respect and stand with that sentiment. Mm -hmm. And so therefore I'm a cuck in the eyes of a bunch <laughs> of, a bunch of internet trolls. And like one dude, like one guy, I posted something about, I mean, cause I'm not perfect. Um, I've done some, uh, you know, shitty things in my life i'm 40 everybody has you know at some point if you haven't i think you're lying right and i've had to make amends and atone for him and i was like you know i have to thank my wife or whatever and some guy went on on my on my instagram was calling my wife a mongoloid oh and so i tried calling him through the app and i was like <laughs> and i sent a message and i was like i was like i was like you knuckle up son right so i'm ready to come fuck you up this cuck's gonna fuck you yeah, up. Yeah, no kidding. That's why I was like, I was like, you know, like in his bio, he was like a Muay Thai fighter. I'm like, you, 
you can call yourself a ninja all day. You talk about my wife like that. I'm going to beat, beat you to death. Right. Okay. That's when I get, that's when, when like, when I get back to the corner or somebody like really like angers me like that or insults yeah. my wife, like, yeah, that's when the macho comes out. Okay. So yeah. I see it now. All right. There yeah. We yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like I've lived enough in my life. Like I, I know that that level of masculinity isn't helpful mm -hmm. in all situations, but uh, when somebody comes at my wife like that, I will slip on the brass knuckles and <laughs> you have some brass knuckles. Huh? <laughs> I'm kidding. The metaphorical brass knuckles. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I wouldn't really, that's a weapon. I wouldn't. Use. Okay. So let's get back to this. So you're on the ship, oh, yeah, right? Sorry. Yeah. That's all right. You're on the ship and, uh, you have to, and then all of a sudden 2003 Bush, George W announces that we're going to war with Iraq. Oh, we knew it before he announced it. You did. It was just if if anybody had half a brain, mm -hmm. you saw it coming. You, you saw it coming. Now, how did you feel about that? Knowing there there were no Iraqis on that flight, right? When the the moment that we launched missiles into Baghdad was the moment that I knew I was going to get out of the military. Get out, yeah. Uh huh. Because the way that I would ask people on my ship, I'd say, "What are we bombing these people for?" They'd be like, "Well, that's, that's our orders." Like, well, not, Iraq didn't have anything to do with 9 11. Like, well, they're terrorists. I'm like, what? I'm like, do you know what a terrorist is? And we, and, and through Iraq, we helped embolden them and create ISIS. Right. That was part of the thing that led to that. So yeah. we did worse. We destabilized that region. The person keeping Iraq in check was Saddam Hussein. Right. And we removed him. And you can't tell me that it wasn't in pursuit of corporate oil interest. And, but moreover, people, we're launching missiles into Baghdad. You watch them fly over the, uh, over the horizon. And then you can see on the news feed, we're leveling the city. Killed thousands of people. You saw that. Yeah. You knew it was your missiles. Yeah. And we killed thousands of people. I mean, I mean, between us and like a couple of other ships, sure. we leveled a city. We killed thousands of people. Children and children, women. women, and for what? And and one guy, you know, I think he, I think he's gotten older, and I think he would realize the how stupid it was. But he started playing bombs over Baghdad, oh. the Outcast song, you know, same album <laughs> from nine eleven. Damn you, Outcast! Uh, yeah, I know you're so pervasive in my life. I think Andre. Well, the thing was, is bombs over Baghdad is an anti-war song. It was about right. the first Iraq war. It was like. Is like you don't pull that thing out unless you plan to bang. That's like that's gangbanger shit. Because like when you pull a gun on somebody, and you don't pull the trigger, they're gonna come back at you right. and they're gonna fuck you up. And so, it like we did a huge show of force in Iraq the first time. That's part of what made Osama bin Laden motivated to attack us on nine eleven. An endless cycle of revenge. Right. And now we're right. And now, now we just went and leveled everything and then it's ISIS. And now it's like, it's the world's still fucked up. It's, it's kind of like star Wars for terrorists, <laughs> you know, like all the bombing in 2003. Now those kids that were living with the bombing, seeing their parents get killed, their grandparents get killed. They grow up. Yeah. And now they're 15 years old. Yeah. Starting to join ISIS. Yeah. They hate us hate us and rightfully so because that's what they grew up with right and uh, americans are killing my family yeah that's what they see 
and and just even in that moment i'm like this is like this is insane i i can't believe that everybody is so complicit and so eager to now we all had to follow orders right you follow if you don't follow an order you're breaking a law and especially, which is a, a a tricky road to travel because you know world war ii what do you mean World War II, the Nazis were just following orders. Oh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, true. There's a little bit more nuance to it than that, but like, uh, in, in terms of how it related to us and to me, I didn't, I didn't pull any triggers. I didn't push any buttons. My role there was to actually ensure everyone's safety. It, I'm not, I'm not casting any blame on you. No, 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 no. I'm just saying I'm very uh, sensitive to that uh excuse of like oh well I'm, i was just following orders right and as you should be no for sure um and i'd like to think that in, in that instance as but in as bad as that was it wasn't uh it wasn't quite on par with you know what went on during world war ii of course not right right uh because i already feel bad enough <laughs> <laughs> And 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 a lot of the why because you won't let Louis C.K. perform on your bars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You hear that, Louis? I'm so calling, mean. I'm calling you out. <laughs> um, no, it's just I'm very sensitive about like even my role in it, and when people uh, uh, people have like called it into question or belittled me for it or said whatever, it's like I already feel bad enough. Uh, like I have a more moral PTSD. Uh -huh. than I do uh, like having guns shoved in my face. Or... You, you think about it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 There was a long time after we had done that that I would just have nightmares about just rooms full of dead children. And I mean, like, not to bum everybody out who's listening, but it's just true. And so uh, that, that definitely uh, encouraged me to get out. Right. Yeah, because I I was at the point where I I really I really enjoyed being I really enjoyed being in the military to some some extent. I enjoyed being in the in the navy. Yeah, I love I love being out on the water. I love sailing. I loved going to new countries and and if I you know if I had twenty years to to spend on a boat, I would have done it traveling the world and seeing new things and and you could be a cruise ship comedian <laughs> <laughs> bring it all together yeah yeah um i mean so but i don't i i've had people who've tried to reconcile the whole situation with me and tell me that what we ended up doing was ultimately for the best or whatever the case may be but i still don't in, entirely feel that way so when you when you decided at that moment in 2003 after mm -hmm. the bomb went to Baghdad that you wanted to get out you obviously realized there was a rift between you and some of your other mates some of the them ship. yeah 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 i think so did you have to keep quiet no you didn't keep quiet no we fought all the time you fought with your yeah some people were on my side for sure mm -hmm. and then i learned after a while to just let go because a guy like i'm not going to change it by myself I used to I used to be pen pals or email buddies I guess at this point with uh, Henry Rollins ah and he would I would write him and ask him advice while you were on the while ship. I was on the ship and he would tell me and he was like get out man he would write you back yeah be cool yeah I met him before I joined the Navy 
I met him in 1999. He was touring with his band. It was the second or it was the third uh, iteration of Rollins' band. The very first show that he kicked off was in Toledo at Frankie's Inner City, and he, mm. he he's the type of guy he'll talk to anybody. He wants to talk to people, and, and I talked to him, and he was one. He's like, "You got to get out of this town." I was like, "I got to get out of this town." And he's like, "Move, idiot!" He's like, "Go, just get out." <laughs> Right. You know, and, and you took it too literally where I you took it super literally. I was like, yeah, I threw my beer down. And I was like, let's get out of here guys. <laughs> and, um, and so I would write him about the, the, the sort of stuff. And he was like, Hey, you're not going to make any, you're not going to affect any change from inside the system like that, man. He's like, you gotta get out. So how do you get out? Weren't you bound to do a certain amount of years? Yeah. So I was originally supposed to get out in early 2005. Uh, but they actually, it was in 2004. I was supposed to get out. I was supposed to get out Thanksgiving 2004. The problem uh, was I was really, really good at my job, and I had a lot of responsibility. I was um, I was an engineer, and I was also an EMT, a firefighter. When all the anthrax attacks were happening, I was trained at at how to respond to that. I was inoculated with anthrax. I had a higher level of security and stuff like that. So I was supposed to get out Thanksgiving. What do you mean you were inoculated with anthrax? In order to in order to be in the presence of anthrax, I had to be inoculated. Like I had to have anthrax shot into my body. Whoa! So you could become immune to it. Yeah, you're not immune, but it allows you to. It, it gives you like a, a. It gives you a little bit more immunity. You'll wow. never, you're never like fully immune to it. Yeah, like I couldn't. Nobody could throw anthrax in my face, and I'd be like, I wouldn't sneeze my way through it or anything. But like, I would definitely get sick. <laughs> yeah, I would yeah. imagine. Yeah. So and like you get sick when you get inoculated with it. I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> so it's pretty brave of you to uh, agree to that. Did you have a choice? I did have a choice, actually. Okay. No, I agreed to do it. I mean, I didn't want to see Tom Brokaw or Tom Daschle or any of these people. I didn't think, like, no matter what's going on with our country, you still can't send anthrax to to my people. Right. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. so uh, and I was just too important to the functions of the ship. So I remember I was it was getting to be around Thanksgiving time, and I was like, I was... Uh, cleaning up the hallways or whatever our usual daily routine and our senior enlisted officer came by and he was like like humphrey when are you supposed to get out and i was like thanksgiving and he's like i don't think so, so can we they had, do that can they just yeah. keep you against your will well it's not see when you sign on to join the military you actually sign on for eight years you sign four years of active duty service you sign four years of inactive reserve and they had during any point in time if like especially during a war or time call, of war, call you back. They can either call you back or they can just not let you go, and so they just didn't let me go. I worked out a deal with them though too because they wanted me to go back and then go back overseas and go back over to the Persian Gulf, and I wouldn't go. I was starting to really show off my attitude mm-hmm. at that point. I used to do a lot of like really dumb things to just get attention and to just let people know like I'm not happy here anymore. You were actively against the war. Yeah, I was pretty, yeah, yeah. I was against a lot of things that we were doing. And so, um, and so they wanted me to go back to it. And I was like, I I was like, you guys don't want to take me back over there. I'm not going to be in a good mood and I'm already kind of a pain in the ass. And I know you need me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to help you get ready to go. Mm. And then you can let me go. And that's what they agreed to. What year did you get out? 2005. I got out uh june 2005 
Somewhere around there. Yeah. Go back to Toledo? Fuck no. <laughs> nah. Yeah, where do you go from there? I went to Charleston, South Carolina. Oh. Why? Yeah. Uh, Charleston's the, like the most beautiful. Well, it used to be. I think it's getting too overgrown. It's, it used to be the most beautiful city in America. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that city would be now, but uh, it's still it's still fantastic. It's still really beautiful. What brought you there? My family. Oh, your family. Was- yeah, yeah. My uh, I grew up in Toledo. My uh, my parents, my stepfather, my mother, and my little brothers, who are twenty years younger than me. They moved down to Charleston when I was like 19. I got kicked out at 18, so I was like already on my own. In Toledo? Yeah. You were living with your mom? Until I was like, yeah, until I was like 18, they kicked me out. He kicked you out of the house? Yeah. Why? I was a dickhead. Yeah? Rebellious? Yeah, I just, um, I just wanted to drink and smoke and fuck off and go to concerts and just be a degenerate. And she had, she was pregnant at the time. And she was like, you're not going to be living like this around my children. Uh, how old was your mom when she had you? My mom was 22 when she had me. Yeah, young. Yeah, she was 22 when she had me, and then she was 41 when she had my brothers. Wow. Yeah. Impressive. So she so, kicked me out. Like I think she was 40 when she kicked me out. Did you finish high school? Barely. Yeah. I mean, but I was, I was done with... I had, I had gotten my diploma in the mail by that point, and I was actually... It was, I think I was like a couple of weeks into my freshman year at college. I was going to Bowling Green State University and I was living with them and they were like, you got to go. And so I ended up having to just go be on my own at that point. And I didn't last too much longer in college after that. Did you ever finish? No, I went back on my own. I went back to night school. I was like welding during the day and doing um, uh, like blue collar labor. And I was putting myself through school. I was doing really well, actually. I was doing much better on my own because I had to pay for it. And I had to do things that I was actually interested in versus what people expected of me. Yeah. But I just got so tired of Ohio. I grew up there. I was around the same people my whole life. And I just wanted to get the fuck out. When you came from the Navy and moved back to uh, Charleston, South Carolina, mm-hmm. did you and you walked in and did your mom you differently did you feel differently yeah yeah it wasn't always positive though um i changed a lot during the military because i i I, you know you get institutionalized and uh and some things i i still agree with institutionalized in the way where you you get a lot of discipline yeah not like a mental asylum institution yeah 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 yeah. uh i would you know picked up a lot more like quote-unquote military traits or things like that Mm -hmm. or or exhibited that sort of hoorah sort of shit and uh so it took me a long time to like deprogram from that as well can you what do you mean by that like uh patriotism uh no a little bit more patriotic but also um more of a disciplinarian and more of uh like kind of the machismo oh yeah yeah sort of thing and i also I spent so much time being gone. My motivation for moving down there was to be close to my family. And I, and at certain points of time, like I wasn't very much fun to be around, believe it or not. (laughs) (laughs) Why just too macho? Were you more closed minded than you are now? Probably so. Probably more closed minded. Um, I treated the, my brothers more like they were like, more like they were my kids, like they needed to have like a stronger male presence. Uh, well, they're so much younger than you, right? Right, yeah, but how I went about doing it, I mean, is not the way that you should. 
you went you were more forceful macho about yeah it. yeah yeah and expected more discipline out of the kids than they than they their kids they shouldn't you know you know sort of thing and um i mean nothing bad it's not like i was like a uh abusive or anything of that nature you know but it was just like you call people sir yes ma'am no ma'am like my brother got in the habit of calling me dude i was like i'm not your dude you know mm. you call me sir because i want them to learn that and i and that that also came though but i come from my father was never around my real father but my grandfathers were my mm. and one of my grandfathers was a uh, world war ii veteran the other one by the time he was i'm 40 by the time he was 40 he already had his uh i think at least one or two grandkids and he, and he had five kids of his own. He had been married for 24 years. Like he was a, 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 lived a full life. Right. And he, he, you know, Catholic and you give respect, you show Old, respect. All older generation. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, I kind of miss that sometimes too, because I, you know, after he died, some elements of things in my family kind of fell off a little bit. And I mm. think that I, I, I'm, open-minded enough to new ideas and looking at new things and having new new perspectives on things. But I don't think that we should completely throw out the baby with the bathwater. Right. As it, as in regards to certain, you feel like we're missing sort of some uh, respect for elders kind of thing. Yeah. Or just respect for each other. Mm. You know, uh, we're definitely not as polite a society as we used to be. You mentioned earlier that your dad was pretty machismo. Did you, at yeah. the time when you went to South Carolina, did you, at any point, was it like, thought, am I just not my father? Yeah, actually, that's become more of a prevalent thing the older and older that I've gotten. But mm. uh, there are some ways. Now, I was actually probably, if he were alive, he died when I was in the Navy. Yeah, huh? yeah. I think the last time I saw him was a little bit after 9-11. He OD'd. He OD'd on heroin? Yeah, and crack. Two oh. for one. Uh, nice yeah at least he probably didn't feel anything yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and so he od'd and um i think like if he were i, I would just i just pity him and i think that i probably i mean by the time i was like 16 i was bigger by the time i was like 14 i was his size by the time i was 16 i was bigger and, you know, you still kind of, because he was my dad, I was a little bit, like, afraid of him. But I think by the time I was, like, 22 or 23, I'd been like, Dad, I'll smack the shit out of you. Yeah. I'm more, I was more afraid of my mom because my mom actually raised me. Right. And it took a lot for my mother to raise. A, I'm 6'4", 300 pounds now. I've always been since I was a kid, the biggest kid. And it, yeah. took, it takes a lot to raise a big kid like that. Right, because you probably may not realize it consciously, but everyone's a little bit scared of you. Right. Oh, I'm very well aware of it. Now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm petrified of you personally. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. I'm a big softie. <laughs> I usually sit a lot closer to my guests. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we are in uh, safety booths. <laughs> yes. I usually don't put people in glass cages. Yeah, no. Uh, but I am a monster. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you're, when's the last time you saw your dad? Do you remember the last moment? Uh, yeah. Uh, I think we bought some CDs at a Best Buy. He got, my grandma passed away and he got a bunch of money in the estate and he got, and he got not a, not like oodles of money and maybe 40 or 50 grand and a car and him and his stupid fuck wife shot it all up into their arms. 
And I remember seeing him like towards the end. I was like, I don't know how much longer you're going to make it, buddy. You said that to him? No, not really. I just wanted to have like, we would hang out for like an afternoon and I just wanted it to be over with. Mm-hmm. He never really had an interest in my life and he never really w- wanted to like be present. I don't, I think he was just so wrapped up in self-loathing and self-pity that he just wanted to, I think he knew subconsciously what he was doing. Just did slowly know, killing himself. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Who knows? But did he know that you knew that he was using? No, I think he, I mean, I don't know. I don't think he knew. Yeah. I think a lot of times junkies don't realize how obvious it is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was so obvious. Like his eyes were jaundiced and he was just misshapen. He was thinner in areas than he should have been, but fatter in areas where he shouldn't have been. And he died. His, uh, his wife, my stepmother, uh, had abandoned the kids. Wait, they had kids. They had two kids. Yeah. They, no, they weren't. They were my sister at the time was 14. And I think my brother was 12 and they were in the house he dies he overdoses she's all junked up and so she takes a car and just takes off and leaves the kids with the dead body in the house yeah for like days and they you know so they didn't call the police or anything her husband dies yeah so yeah the kids ended up having to like pretty much take care of all of it and then the state was going to take them and then their grandparents her parents um intervened and took them in well she kind of had no choice because she's using as well oh she yeah she could have just been an adult and then owned up to the bullshit they caught her she ended up having to go to jail and did have to go to jail yeah you you can't just leave the scene with a dead body even though she didn't kill him right yeah you're i mean you're there there were so many counts that she was guilty of you know child endangerment child abandonment uh leaving a fucking corpse like that's a that's a law you know it is, huh? yeah 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 you can't leave corpses around and uh who else, who knows whatever else that she was fucking charged with well the, so whose kids were those her and my father's yeah they're my half siblings right so. so they were her maternal children yeah they're her kids them. yeah yeah were they using when she was when they were conceived no, she smoked though when they were. And yeah, the reason that my dad wasn't a junkie for the majority of the time that the kids were around is he didn't have any money to be. That inheritance was a yeah. blessing and a big curse. It was huh? a huge curse. It was a huge curse. Yeah. And uh that's sometimes one of the things I worry about with my own self. You have addictive tendencies not no not like that but i'm not always the best with money like if somebody gives me like a boatload of money i'm like oh shit who wants some jet skis right right <laughs> <laughs> like um and just like an inability to manage it pro- i've gotten so much better over the years actually being poor has really taught me that being a poor comedian has really taught me to stretch a dime. Yeah. Which is a good lesson to learn. Yeah. I, I used to be better. My mom was really, really good at it. My mom's excellent with her finances and she's really good at it. And she never really passed those lessons on to me. But from the moment I I've been working since I was 15, I've never been good at saving, but I've been good at always making sure I pretty much have money to spend. How did you, uh, when you got back to South Carolina, how did you deal with kind of, adjusting to a regular civilian life and taming some of that machismo out of you uh it took a long time it took like a good solid year 
I lived with uh, one of my best friends and his wife. And I remember sitting there just, we would be at like a social function. Did you ever see The Hurt Locker? Mm, Catherine maybe. Bigelow movie. It's Jeremy Renner. He plays like a bomb. Uh, he plays a, a, a bomb technician mm. over during that shit. At one point in time, he comes back home and he's he's with his wife from deployment and he's in a there's this one scene i'll never forget it and he's in the grocery store trying to live like a normal life and right, there's right, just right. boxes he's in the cereal aisle and he's looking at all just the boxes of cereal and he's like i don't understand this fucking world right and now it wasn't that bad for me but it did it, i do recall like being in grocery stores and looking at people and be like, this is completely fucking weird. Right. Well, when you're in the, when you're in the military, you're, there's a primal thing of like, you're fighting to survive. Everything is very important. Mm -hmm. Then when you're in the grocery store aisle, I would imagine you're like, I don't care. What fucking yeah. Life is set on easy. It's meaning and yeah. meaningless. It's, yeah. It's meaningless. You can look at it and be like, all this sugar coated crap is just sent out to be marketed to people, which can be, pretty depressing yeah it certainly is yeah yeah especially when you have been around the world and you see that other people don't live like americans do i mean i went to the grocery store like anybody else when i was in the military but i was being by by i was just like the day-to-day -day. if like it was one thing to go to the grocery store once in a week if you're in the military and you see other military people and whatnot and then you you know that you're still in that mindset, but to be have that release, right? And then to just be like, I'm a normal person now. Yes, that was that took a lot of readjustment. Yeah, and I didn't even see. I saw combat, but I didn't even see like combat, combat, like combat where you, like these guys were boots on the ground kicking in the door. I can only imagine what that feels like. It must be even that much harder to adjust than what you had to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. And I wasn't good at socializing with regular people. Uh, it took a long time for me to deal with that. What was it? Just the small talk, small talk. Um, when you're, well, I was in the, I was gone a lot. So relationships with people and especially women were short and mm. they were intense. Right. There were no women on your boat. I mean. No, there were women. Oh, there were. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So you were all right. You yeah, had yeah. some conversations. Yeah, 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 yeah. Lots the of, other lot, half. Lots of really great women. Um, I served with for sure. Cool. Totally cool people. But they even they don't socialize how normal people socialize. And then also too, I was never good at it on my own. Anyways, I was always a weird outcast kid in high school, mm -hmm. as it were. And then like briefly in college, I wasn't always the best at it. And then. As I was starting to learn and develop those things, I take myself out of that situation. I put myself in a completely different set of circumstances. And so it was really a case of arrested development in that regard. Yeah. And then also it was arrested development and then it turned into a different culture entirely. Yeah. So that took about a year or so for me to really like find my groove and, and get back to being or get to being like just like a regular guy how old were you at the time in charleston south carolina where you started to get your groove and like assimilate 26 27 okay. yeah when did you uh move to new york 33 okay. yeah so you're there for a while yeah yeah i was there for seven years yeah mm -hmm. what uh made you start stand-up comedy i I had always been funny. I had always used to uh, write. Were you, were you funny on the boat? Yeah. Mm. 
I uh, on our way back from Iraq, we had a talent contest, mm. and uh, we had a talent contest, and, and a whole bunch of people entered, and they'd enter to sing or play guitar or something like that. And people were like, "You should enter! You should enter!" And I was like, "No, no, no! I'm not gonna enter because I used to do impressions of everybody uh-huh. around the ship, and I used to just make fun of people all the time, or just like tell stories or do goofy shit." like enter man enter do your impressions of people whatever and i was like no 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 i'm not gonna enter and i didn't enter for a specific reason that's how like much of a prick showman i am is that but i still went and watched right and so everybody that was telling me to enter they were all also watching and so there were like maybe 10 contestants or whatever we had 300 people on the boat there's like maybe 10 contestants and they went up the captain's hosting it and he was like is there anybody else like who's left or whatever and then i knew it in the crowd and they started a chant they're like hump hump that was my nickname hump 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 i got the whole mess decks was like chanting for me i was like i didn't even enter guys and like you know and then i just went up there and i was like all right i guess i'll do my impressions i just did i did like a set yeah and i won nice and i you know i got like time off or whatever which is huge in the military that's money yeah yeah and uh but i'd always been that way i used to write sketches in school i used to draw comics with my friends uh i used to be the caught up in the classroom in the lunchroom and all that sort of shit i just didn't know how to channel it properly yeah and so when i got to charleston i went just got a normal job i was working at a hotel and i would be involved in like rec league basketball and tennis and stuff, which was fulfilling. It was great for exercise, but it wasn't, it didn't, it wasn't enough. Right. And Charleston didn't really have, they had a comedy club, but it closed. It was some type of like, you know, LOL level club, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, it closed. Which is a low level. uh, Yeah. It's pretty low level. Yeah. (laughs) And so uh, uh they had but they did have charleston has a fantastic art scene and they had an improv theater and so i just googled charleston comedy the the improv theater came up you could take classes so i just started taking classes did you know at the time if you wanted to do uh stand-up comedy sketch comedy you knew you wanted to do comedy of some sort i really wanted to do stand-up i just didn't know how you did it right and had you listened to stand-up comedians oh yeah yeah absolutely i grew so you didn't know how you go about getting into it yeah i just don't know like yeah i used to when i lived in toledo when i was out on my own 18 19 20 i would go to like the the college had poetry readings and you could do like You're like okay spoken this is kind word of it's <laughs> yeah it's like i could get up on stage and i could tell stories and i could i could like i told like funny stories or do silly things or whatever the case may be uh-huh we had a comedy club, but I never put two and two together to just go by there and be like, hey, how do I get into this? I right. just thought it was just such an untangible. I didn't even think you just, because every comedian always came from another place. Mm, it's right. like, oh, you got to go somewhere else to be a comedian. Right. It was mostly touring comics coming. Through yeah. 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 I, didn't, I don't think we ever had a local comedy scene for sure <laughs> yeah. so i moved to charleston and i bet there's one now there is one now yeah one of the guys actually i think he's moving here because it's, it's done so well for him mm-hmm. so um so anywho uh i was in charleston and i started taking improv classes and 
that was a lot of fun, but it wasn't really quite like where I was trying to be at sort of thing. And I re- I met a guy and then we started doing sketch. Me and a couple of people started doing sketch. And then I met a guy who was, had done stand up before and he was just getting back into it. And so he and I started doing stand up. We started an open mic together. It was nice. mainly him. He mainly ran with it. And so, and then that guy just made his debut on the tonight show a couple of weeks ago. Who is that? Dusty Slay. Yeah, one of my good friends. And uh, so we started doing stand-up together, and then it got to a point where Charleston's like a really nice town, and um, they it's really quaint, and they'd like to have things be nice and neat and clean and pretty, and they don't want to deal with some of like, the gritty underside of life. Mm. And I wanted to be in New York. I wanted to be like... We used to, we used to have this open mic, like this place called the Upper Deck Tavern, and... It was a it was a second story bar, but you had to walk into like this alleyway looking fucking place with this dark red light, and uh, you had to walk up a set of stairs, whatever, and just walking into that hallway, into the dark red light, going up. To, that was like my favorite thing in the world because it was like I felt like I was entering just this seedy underworld. Yeah, I read a lot of Hemingway and Henry Miller and stuff like that in my late teens and early twenties, and I just liked. Genius. just yeah 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 i like i like i love i love in, in new york especially in brooklyn or you know even manhattan i love seeing a red sign outside a bar that just says bar right you know one of the ones that stick out into the street or whatever the case may be or just like because that's where real life happens in the shadows yeah you probably don't love the trend of new york then because it's changing. Yeah, it's getting too clean. Very clean. Yeah. I mean, uh, you don't really see drug dealing on the street, which is odd for a city. You don't see prostitution on the street. No. Uh-uh. You don't see that much graffiti. No. Mm-mm. And those bar signs are now like yogurt signs. Yeah, yeah, for 16 <laughs> handles. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of sad in that regard. It's. I mean, it's, it's good, I guess, but well, then it's also crime. bad. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> I, I, yeah, there, there is definitely less crime, but, but then also though, but back then though, when that sort of shit was going on, people day to day looked proper. Like there mm. were more like, you know, people don't really wear suits and ties as much anymore. Or right. Collar. Tr- I mean, look at me. It's too hot for that sort of shit anyways, but like, <laughs> um but yeah, you never saw those people sweating you know i like know the, which is the weird poets are walking around with a suit and whatever yeah but. yeah yeah <laughs> like brett easton ellis in the 80s was running around the east village in a suit and i'm like yeah how'd you pull that off man yeah not really you know so how, how did you how did it strike you because uh often uh improv and stand-up comedy are lumped together it's just comedy yeah. comedy but once you get into it you realize they're so different oh yeah and the people the people are so different yeah now you coming from the navy getting into improv uh you're used to that kind of camaraderie yeah in in improv you really rely on your teammates team sport it's a team sport yeah where stand-up comedy is very much alone right exactly very alone yeah back to fighting that war alone yeah Yeah. but in, in the navy you probably felt like you weren't alone you're fighting all together right so how so did you like improv feeling that teammate I did. I did like improv. The 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 other aspect of it though was it was because it was a team. If you're the type of person who really wants to take comedy seriously, mm. it, to make it a real pursuit, you need other people to have that same level of intensity. Yeah, that's the. Problem. And you know, 
Charleston's a beautiful place and some people are just happy to perform like once a week, you know, in front of their friends and local, you know, community, which I think is fantastic. I wish I were the type of person who could have been happy with that. And cause I think that that's a very happy life, Yeah, but I wasn't destined for happiness. <laughs> you, you, you feel like, you feel like this, uh, creative thirst is a curse. Sometimes. Yeah. 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 My, my wife and I wrestle with it all the time because my wife is uh, super smart. She's a teacher in New York City. She teaches at Bard Early College. She works with uh, students who have um, certain learning um, deficits, I guess we could call it. Mm-hmm. And she works with just like a select group of students. And I think that she uh helps them maintain like they're really super good in you know five out of six areas she helps them with the shortfall that they're in right but they're also students who i think need uh like have a little bit challenges like special needs and she's been trained to deal with that which how long you been married for two years how long did you date before uh we dated for four years before that i asked because i'm newly married it's actually day eight Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How long were you guys together before? Uh, two about little more than little more than two years. Oh, okay. What was your wife do? Uh, she's a musician and she's studying to become a SLP speech language pathologist. Oh, cool. Oh, that's what I think Racine's girlfriend does. That. Mm. Yeah. But anyways, um, so but she has. But I wanted to ask. Oh you about, no, go on. Just because it's new for me. Yeah. Uh, how did it change things like going from girlfriend to wife? No. Anything changed for you? No, I don't think so. I think, well, when, I mean, I, marriage makes it more real. You can't just walk away. Although we, you know, had instances where we both could have walked away before, but the reason our marriage works is that we would be completely fine if we weren't with each other. We're completely independent people. Right. I, which is, in theory sounds probably better than it really is because she had like, she had summers off. She was in Asia for most of the summer by herself. Yeah. I, I saw that she was gone for two months. Yeah. You I didn't see her. She, uh, yeah. For the most part. Yeah. I would say it was more like six weeks. She was in, gone like in Asia and then she came back for about a week and then she went down to South Carolina cause her family, she has some family in South Carolina. Mm. And, um, so I, I, I hadn't really seen her most of the yeah. summer and I'm here and I'm, I, I told her I couldn't take the summer off to not, you know, not, not only like working wise, we could have subleased our apartment and, and I could have just lived like, you know, with her in Asia or whatever, but I didn't want to take that time off of comedy cause it's my job. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. 
So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And thankfully... This summer, I feel like has I put a lot of work in, and I feel like I've really progressed. So it wasn't for naught. However, it's not something that I really want to go through again. I don't want us to be separated that much. Yeah. How, how was it? Was it a strain on the relationship? No, I mean she's happy. She's happy that she went. I'm happy for her that she went. Yeah. Um, I wish I could have gone, and I, w- I was like pretty envious of that. I think if I had stayed here and I just got drunk every day and fucked off, that right. would have been a real bad yeah. scenario. Um, or if, yeah, I mean that 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 that, ugh, that definitely would have been the worst case scenario. Yeah, I mean, there, I think not that you guys sound codependent at, at all, but I think that kind of just happens. You you get like a fear of separation. You get like separation anxiety. It's almost chemical. Yeah, I trust her completely, and she trusts me, which is uh, which is huge. Yeah, that's the biggest aspect I've learned of any relationship. Trust, trust. You got to have that one hundred percent, and it's it can be difficult. It was difficult for her for a while. I feel like to to deal with me being in comedy. Why? Because you're out of bars and stuff. All yeah, because I'm out a lot, and thankfully I don't drink like I used to. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a big contention for the two of us, and I never did anything bad. It's not like I was running around. Um, pulling my dick out you know sort of shit (laughs) or even being a bad guy or saying anything bad it was just more like the hangovers were i were starting to add up and then like money and i just were more i was more irritable than anything like that but then also too one misconception about comedy uh is that you have to be a drunk or you have to hang out and drink all the time you can hang out i love hanging out with comics i just don't need to go get plastered with them every day mm-hmm. and i've you know that's a that's a sad misconception that i think we could probably do away with i found that a lot of comics actually don't even drink more and more aren't drinking as much yeah yeah thank god for weed <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's why yeah <laughs> so was that a, that was an issue with you and your wife that she didn't like that you were drinking a lot while you were dating you were drinking a lot yeah mm-hmm. and even when we were married initially yeah. um i was drinking it was just a habit it wasn't, it was just like every day it would be like at least like probably two beers, you know, or, mm-hmm. it, which isn't bad, but it's also not good. Right. When it's seven days a week. When it's seven days a week. And then like on the seventh day you're drinking 12 beers and yeah, it starts to become a real problem. But you're not getting drunk on two beers. No. Uh-uh. uh-uh. Especially if you're drinking seven days a week. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 But just like being out of shape and the lifestyle and looking shitty and. And I was, uh, since I don't sleep, it it made me more irritable. Right. And, but the first half of the year, the first six months of the year of this year, I didn't drink at all. 
took six months off. Of six drinking. months. Off. I I was trying to do the whole year, but we were out of town Memorial Day, and we were having a really good weekend. I was like, I would like one beer, and now I have a beer every few days because doing comedy sometimes you get all the free beer you want. Yeah, but I turn a lot of it down. I'm I'm of the philosophy that moderation is kind of more impressive than a hard line. Absolutely. Yeah, and also too, I just don't want to be boring. Like I don't want to be the guy you can't. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to be the guy you can't like have a beer with because you right. know, like I'm gonna be a fucking monster if I just have a beer. That's never the case, right? Well, you see people like four years sober. I'm like, whatever. I'm like more than that moderating. You know, yeah. <laughs> some people really need it. Um, and I, I, I've seen some people who can't have just two beers. I get it, but. Uh, then moderate that would be much more impressive would than be just more being impressive. sober yeah no that's a good point yeah yeah if you can like handle the temptation but also indulge it just a little bit exactly yeah. be a normal freaking person yeah yeah <laughs> sometimes i just uh have to have a beer though yeah i'm just half playing with it yeah half <laughs> <laughs> i'm moderating that's my, that's my philosophy you know never all the way one way or the other yeah i think the happy medium is right is right in the happy place yeah yeah, yeah absolutely so, uh, but yeah, so I got involved in stand up in Charleston and mm-hmm. we started to get this little scene going. And uh, there are a lot of us at the time who were doing comedy. And then uh, it started to gain traction and more and more stand ups wanted to come through town and we would get opportunities to open up for, you know, Michael Ian Black or Todd Berry or TJ Miller or, <laughs> or whoever <laughs> the case may be. Yeah. I gotta stop telling people I opened up for him at this point, but um, oh, you lost the credit, damn it! <laughs> I wouldn't even call it that. But Rory Scovel was a huge sweetheart. Nate Bargatze, yeah, they were all so great at just they and they were all real honest. They were like, "You gotta get out. You gotta, gotta get you out. Gotta, you leave Charleston at some." How, how many years were you doing it in Charleston for? Um, f- four years, I think. Four or five years, pretty solid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, five years probably, but um. I think that's the best though. Start somewhere else and then move to New York. I should have gone to, uh, instead of doing four years, we'll say I did four years in Charleston because mm. cumulatively though, because I never got to experience a real club. Everything was always indie. Right. Um, I never got to work with like a club manager or like some type of agent or anything like that. So um a lot of professionals i missed out on a lot of professional skills i wish i had gone to a city like atlanta or chicago or something like that for maybe a year or two but i was 33 i wish i had moved at like 30 or 31 to like chicago yep and then gotten some time in there and then moved to here right because so i had to i had a huge um gap in experience and wherewithal that it's taken me now like what year is this yeah like five years five six years to really um close as much as i can what do you mean close close the gap in terms of this is how comedy really works right right it's not like a theater system it's not an indie system there are i mean clubs are just bars with microphones however they do have a system about which they go things yeah and you know also too in charleston's being such a small town it's a lot easier to be a 
big fish in a small pond. Right. Yeah. And also the quality of the work. Did you notice that? Because the quality here in New York, you're often doing shows with some of the top stand-up comics in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, must must have been. Was it a shock for you to come here and be like, whoa, that person's amazing? Yeah, it was like really pretty cool. I mean, I, thankfully, I'd, I'd come like maybe like once or twice before. And I had gotten to be around some comics who were touring from New York. So I got to see what, what the real difference was. And it was pretty shocking. Like I remember going to Christian Polanco used to run an open mic at Freddy's when I first came and the people who used to go to that mic are like Michelle Wolf and Mm. uh, like Noah garden sports and, uh, Adam Newman and Suba Agarwal, and like mm-hmm. all people who are now on TV or uh, writing for TV or who put out Comedy Central specials or roasted the president. Yeah. And I knew then I was like, this is, this is, these people are really good and this is really cool to be around. Right. And it forced me to step my game up. Did you feel like some of your time in Charleston was wasted because you weren't? Uh, push that much as far as your quality i wouldn't say wasted because the the theater had i I mainly worked with the theater a theater 99 and they had a, a quality that they wanted to put out they were serious about their art and i respect that so it it they did have forced me to i wanted to be the guy who could like you know uh really be extreme (laughs) like lack of Uh i was really like a bill hicks guy but um and address some of these things more but that's it's like you know these are regular working class people who just want to take their mind off of stuff you got to be you know so i had to be humbled in that sense i used to hold a real chip on my shoulder though because i felt like i wasn't getting the respect that i was due but that's really just when you moved to new york no when i was in charleston but that was just, that's more me. I think I was just born with that chip on my shoulder anyways. I just yeah. now finally got to the point in my life where I'm like, I got to chill the fuck out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, I wouldn't say wasted. I'd say, the, I'd say I wouldn't say wasted in the arts because participating in the arts is, is good at any level. I would say I wasted it on women uh, in, in, in the hopes of some of the relationships that I had turning into serious ones right well that's a learning experience as well (laughs) that's a learning experience in life yeah for sure and i'm glad that the relationships didn't turn into what i thought they were going to or else i wouldn't be here now right they might have kept you there they would have kept me there i probably have like a kid i mean not that that's bad but it's just not what's in my in me yeah. yeah, I mean, it's kind of amazing how fragile our life's paths are. Yeah, you no know? kidding. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was one woman I was with. I, I want. I, um, she wanted to uh, move away to like a even smaller country town in the mountains, and I was like, "I'll give up everything because I love you so much." Sort of crap. Yeah, and then now looking back, I'm like, "Oh, fuck that." <laughs> yeah, that might that might have been a romantic hope that would have. Yeah, that was a real immature idea um, on my behalf and i'm glad that it it never materialized yeah i used to be kind of a stupidly romantic like that you you get older and you get more realistic yeah yeah i tried to join the french foreign legion when i was in france 
while what I was it? in the Navy because I fell in love with a chick. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, what is the French Foreign Legion? What does that entail? Um, so we met a couple guys who were in it. It's always a thing that I had known about since I was a kid through uh-huh. like cartoons and shit, especially like Bugs Bunny for whatever reason. I just, Happy Le Pew? <laughs> I just, yeah, I just associated with that. And it was like, it, it, um, France isn't necessarily known for their military might. So I think they outsource some uh-huh. of it to whoever's willing to do it in exchange for citizenship. Uh-huh. And I was in lust with a girl so much that we, when we were in um, France, uh, after 9-11, we were in France and we got, we ended up being, we we're supposed to be there for like three days. We ended up being there for 10 because there were always storms that were coming and we just couldn't get out of the port. So I and me and a couple of buddies ended up hanging out with these girls the whole time and they would, you know, take care of us. And like, they're like, stay. They spoke English. Yeah. Oh yeah. And they're like, stay. <laughs> and, and, uh, we'll, you know, we'll take care of you and you can go to school here and all that sort of stuff. And I'm like, this is awesome. I mean, you must've been kind of a rock. So you're an American and you were in the Navy. Yeah. And I was in good shape for once. Uh (laughs) And, uh, is that a thing? Do you find that when you pull up in port and you go out in the, in the world are women like, no, no, not always. No. In fact, more often than not in France, they weren't into it. it. We weren't in uniform. And we ended up hanging out at this uh, bar called the Blind Pig. And that's this this one we ended up at the most. And that's where we met these girls. And just after hanging out with them for a few days and and then them like taking us in basically is how that kind of developed. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But for the most part though, especially after 9-11, definitely after Iraq, when you pull in somewhere you are not a rock star yeah yeah probably uh yeah not welcome no not at all except for boston we went to boston the first fourth of july after 9 11 for fleet week there and that was like being a rock star you know people buy your drinks we take we got to the club I, I was like 22 my buddy mike bonjourna was like 19 and like the bouncers would look at it the, the his id and they'd look at his uniform like come on in man yeah you think some of that drinking was to deal with uh any sort of ptsd or stuff you working out no substance abuse runs on both sides of my family that's okay yeah everybody on my father's side of the family with the exception of my aunt had passed away due to substance abuse mm. my sister my uncle my father grandparents like wow. they're all just like either alcohol or drugs like my uncle my father and my sister all died because of od and uh my mother's side everybody not everybody but there's a fair amount of alcoholism which i think is somewhat cultural cult uh, cultural yeah why am i having such a hard time speaking right now (laughs) it was either that or somewhat biological chemical um i imagine the heroin's not cultural no that was just a dark need Mm -hmm. (laughs) i and i don't like drugs i used to do uh like chemical drugs i don't like pills i don't like acid i don't like anything you shoot or snort mm-hmm. or ingest in that way uh i did a little bit when i was like 19 i was like really i was like i don't give a fuck i want to be a rock star sort of shit um but then like around like 2021 i'm like i don't want to do any of that what were you just experimenting i mean most 19 yeah like 20 i then no, i took like a lot of acid 
I I concluded my experiments, and the experiment was don't do acid ever again. Weren't you in the Navy at 2021? No, I didn't join the Navy. I was 21 when I joined. Oh, okay. Yeah. You don't want to be on acid in the Navy. No, (laughs) uh -uh, no. In fact, the last time I had done mushrooms, I had done it with my buddy Jim, and we I ate like a half ounce of mushrooms. Half an ounce? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, and that was the night, and everything went bad. And that the next day, the next day, I was like, "All right, I'm j- definitely joining the Navy." And the next I, day after that, and the next day after that, I was like, "I, I knew I was." I, so I went to their office, like within. I didn't go immediately the next day because I wanted to like shake off some of the. Yeah. Did you realize that your the dosage of a half an ounce of mushrooms is like way, way, way too much? yeah oh yeah i you found that it. out yeah i knew it like well going into it it was it was uh i, I had been doing like an eighth at a time and i was like well Still a lot. yeah i was like no this is i'm gonna this is gonna be the blowout one and it sure as shit was <laughs> did you see stuff oh of course yeah, yeah i could i couldn't see normally right and i tried to drive Wow. Yeah. Were you able to? No. No, I pulled my car over and I parked it in some empty parking lot in uh, a suburb of Toledo. Were you were you in touch with your conscious mind at all? No. Barely. Barely. I like tried that know. voice that tells us, Hey, you're too this or too that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, for sure. And enough to know that I shouldn't drive. So that voice was still there. That voice was still there. You couldn't silence it with a half an ounce of mushrooms. No. Uh-uh. <laughs> I mean, I just like, I'm. Tr- well, the thing was, is I'm trying to drive and the road is moving. And I just know that I just ha- ha- at least had presence of mind to know that if I get, if I, if I get arrested or if I get pulled over, I'm fucked. I'd already been arrested once on acid. So I knew, like, I'm done. And so, they'd be able to tell you were. Tripping. Oh yeah, yeah. My pupils. I mean, I, you couldn't see. You couldn't see the blue in my eyes. <laughs> and and I just didn't want to fuck with that. And I just knew at that point, I was like, my life is going nowhere. If this is really where I'm at, and this is what I'm going for, then like, what the fuck am I really doing with myself? That was your bottom. Yeah, yeah. Was it? Yeah, more or less in that regard. Yeah. Yeah, see, there's something good about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and sometimes every now and again, though, like like properly, mushrooms are supposed to like help you. Right. And now sometimes I kind of think about that because I get depressed like everybody else and people are like, well, I, re- I read where I took mushrooms and then like it completely rearranged where I was and all that. And I'm like, I, I just, I still don't want to fuck with it. Yeah. Yeah, I'd rather just try and like maybe meditate or I've gotten into yoga. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. So... People do ayahuasca. Ayahuasca, yeah, yeah. Screw all that. Yeah, I just, I don't know. It's just, it's. I've seen the other side. I'm good. Yeah, yeah. half an ounce of mushrooms. I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think people need, you know, if they go through guided levels of that sort of stuff. Well, I think that's the big difference with uh, drug users is that some people do drugs to escape that voice. Yeah. They want to lose control. Yeah. You know, where if you're, if you're not liking the fact that you lose control, that's probably a good sign. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. You yeah. seem like someone that wants to stay. Yeah. Sort of- I can't. Yeah, that's the thing with the drinking thing too, is, is my wife, when we were having some of our, our discussions about the level of alcohol that I would, was using, was that I, I, my argument was always like 
when do you ever see me wasted? You like I was like, you never see me wasted or whatever. And she's like, well, you get a little loud or whatever the case may be. I was like, well, usually people after eight beers are fighting people. So right. it was like in comparison then, which is still a dumb argument. Yeah. Yeah. Preparing yourself to the worst possible yeah, scenario. Yeah. For the most part, whenever now and now after having taken six months off of drinking, now I do notice when I do have two beers, I'm like, okay, that's my limit. But you get you get jo- you get jovial, right? It's yeah, but I, I don't shut up at the appropriate time sometimes. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, man what a story oh well, thank you what a story so uh i saw you your website derek humphrey.com yeah derek humphrey.com you have a ton of shows coming up i have some shows coming up i'm uh i don't know when this airs but you know what? if anybody listens to this and they um they really want to come out and see a show i promise you i'm way more funnier on stage than i am <laughs> in this moment talking about all my bullshit I on October seventeenth, I'll be at Gotham Comedy Club for a benefit for veterans. Uh, Joe Lift is headlining, and um, I'll be there. I don't know if anybody else or who else is going to be there, but it's going to be a great show. Um, tickets, I think, should be going on sale soon. But then, um, and then I'm I'm at my show, Bushwick Bears, every Sunday at Mad Tropical. Some videos of you online. There are some videos of me online. Yeah, There's for sure. links in the show notes as usual. Oh, thanks, man. And then uh, yeah, I got a sketch coming out next week with uh, Boris Hyken and Sarah Dooley. Cool. Uh, and I think it's going to be pretty funny. So Awesome, man. Thanks for sharing yeah, your life. Yeah, thanks for having me on, man. This is cool.